The Jewish high holy days are upon us. How does a Jew get right with God? It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. I didn't expect that music at the beginning of the show, but that means it is Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. Welcome to the broadcast. And that moment of my initial surprise, which those viewing could see, is now memorialized forever, if not forever, for a while, on the Internet. So welcome to the broadcast, 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. I do want to explain aspects of the biblical calendar to you and then how that moved over to the traditional Jewish calendar and why Jews all around the world will be celebrating the new year in just a few days on the first of Tishrei, which is the seventh month of the biblical calendar. So how did that end up being the new year? We'll talk about that. And this is a season where Jews around the world will spend time in reflection and repentance when non-religious Jews will get a little more religious, when religious Jews will really do a lot of soul-searching and praying and seeking to make things right with God and man, then that will lead up to the Day of Atonement when they'll spend over 24 hours, so a little over 24-hour period, fasting, much of that time in synagogue, praying. If you're a religious Jew, you'll spend many, many hours praying, confessing sin, asking for forgiveness and mercy. We'll talk about all that on the broadcast, and then uh, something fascinating that just took place in Jerusalem. One of my friends, a grad from our ministry school, himself a pastor and church planter, he was there to take it in. And I'm going to read his description to you about this unique event, and then we'll take your Jewish-related calls as well, 866-348-7884. So as long as your call relates to a Jewish subject, so it could be Hebrew language, it could be specifically Old Testament Hebrew language, it could be related to Messianic prophecy, it could be related to Jewish traditional practice, it could be related to modern Israel, news in Israel today, we will take your calls. Okay, before we get into the calendar and the High Holy Days, I want to talk to you about a very unique event that recently took place. And uh, I'm just looking for the note here from my, my friend who sent me the information. I began to hear more and more about a reconstituted Sanhedrin, about 71 rabbis who would be coming together to reconstitute the Sanhedrin, which has not functioned for centuries. And this would be a united Jewish leadership to make decisions for the people as a whole. Now, in a case like this, you say, well, who's going to recognize them? Is it going to be universally recognized? Is there one body of Jews or one body of Orthodox Jews or one body of ultra-Orthodox Jews? And the answer to all those questions is no, there is not. So it's not clear how widely recognized they would be. But I've watched this with interest and I've wondered, okay, if they do 
managed to really become a nationally recognized leadership on some level? How much authority will they have? And then what about the inevitable conflict between traditional Judaism as expressed in a Sanhedrin, just like we had in the book of Acts, as different Jewish beliefs and practices were developing in that day, and there was a national leadership. How much will there be a conflict between this leadership and Jews who believe in Jesus? So what happened was there was an outreach from some of these rabbis involved with what would be called this new Jewish Sanhedrin. And they said, look, we are doing a creation concert. Traditional Judaism believes that the first day of the seventh month is the anniversary of the creation of the world, hence a good time to have the new year. Uh, Can you argue for that on any scientific level? No, it's simply Jewish tradition. But they said there's going to be a creation concert in Jerusalem, and it's going to be open to not just traditional Jews, but Christians and others, even invited some Messianic Jews to be present. And this was organized by these leaders, these rabbis who want to constitute a new Sanhedrin, a new Jewish ruling leadership. So here's what my friend wrote to me from Israel. Now, he, he's not just some young guy, kind of starry-eyed, taking in everything, believing everything. He is often questioning, and, and I've raised many questions for him and many concerns. This is his report. And he wrote this to me a couple of days back. Got home last night about 11. It was quite interesting. They explained that this was the dress rehearsal for the big event next year. CBN and Sid Ross Middle Eastern TV covered it live, but I understand the technical stuff had kinks to work out. Very small invited crowd, but it included ambassadors and government delegations from Mexico, Honduras, Guatemala, and Colombia. Those groups are apparently on board with the idea of a new United Nations being located in Jerusalem. So these guys have big plans. They obviously spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on the concert. It was at the Davidson Center archaeological dig perpendicular to the Wailing Wall, directly below the Dome of the Rock. They had a huge orchestra in a prop that looked like Noah's Ark, a 40-plus all-man choir, eight priests on the stone ramparts with traditional robes, shofar, and silver trumpets. Four of the top cantors, so these are the liturgical singers in the synagogue, four of the top cantors in Israel, and a state-of-the-art light and sound projected series that was on ancient stone walls, creating an entirely otherworldly effect. Then he gives a link to BreakingIsraelNews.com, and it it's an article about this event. So if you go to BreakingIsraelNews.com and look for this, you'll find this about nations recognizing the Sanhedrin. We sat with octogenarian Jewish praise music pioneers Merv and Merla Watson, famous for songs like Awako Israel and Jehovah Jireh. They were in tears at times and blown away. See some Messianic Jewish leaders. Here's the report. This is Merv's personal report. The World Creation Concert last night. What a fabulous event it was. It was an outstanding privilege to be invited and to experience this magnificent happening of such profundity, spiritual depth, and excellence of masterful technology, beautifully executed while laden with deep respect for God and what we know of his ways and character. Ancient walls vibrated with the power of six shofars, the ram's horns. 
blown by six priestly white-clothed men standing high on the ramparts, who followed with a blistering series of trumpet blasts thrusting the thousand-strong audience into a breath-stopping journey of pre-creation space. This was day one of the Genesis creation story, a moment of exquisite triumph for those of us who are believers in the Bible. There, surrounded by the walls of the remnants of a 20 times destroyed city, Jerusalem, all of those present were sound and sight shocked into an incomparable visual and oral affirmation of what we believe to be historical truth. We became witnesses to a miracle of the action of the creative spirit of God, hovering over what seemed empty space, but so the bursting forth of creatures and sights bathed in the newness of purity's beginnings. Huge Hebrew letters appeared on the rocks announcing each event while the crescendo of a hundred-piece orchestra, 50-voice men's chorus, and brilliant cantorial singers captured all our hearts with the emotional commitment to the moment's overwhelming splendor of biblical truth. For the next two hours, the transfixing parade of sights and sounds stampeded us into a multi-millennial timelessness of history's biblical pageantry. That's an incredible report. And I sit here and I tell you, I don't know what to make of it. Oh, listen, I would be thrilled. I would be absolutely thrilled if traditional Jew and Messianic Jew came together to worship God and there was openness for exchange of views and traditional Jews began to see the possibility of being a loyal Jew, worshiper of the one true God while following Yeshua as the Messiah. That would be beautiful. That would be awesome. I don't see that happening. So I'm wondering how this new group of rabbis, Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox rabbis, feels that they can effectively do outreach to evangelical Christians to be standing with them while recognizing that these evangelical Christians believe Jesus is the Messiah. I'm not saying anyone's being duplicitous. I'm not saying this is a satanic setup. I'm not saying the event was not as beautiful as these eyewitnesses described. I just don't know where all this is going. So I watch with real interest. Now, I am not one who for years and years has been looking for a red heifer without blemish. Why is that important to many? Well, we know from the book of Numbers, the 19th chapter, that for the ritual of purification, so let's say you accidentally touch a corpse or get defiled in one way or another, for purification rituals, you needed to use the ashes of a red heifer that was unblemished. So for many years, as religious Jews, some religious Jews are looking to rebuild the temple, and others saying, well, the Messiah comes, he'll build it. Either way, you're going to need a red heifer without blemish to fulfill those temple rites. So some people really into prophecy and trying to figure this out, they've been looking for the red heifer. And for years, you hear reports, no, they found a blemish. It could be, oh, no, they found a blemish. So some traditional rabbis have been trying to breed cows so that they can end up with a red heifer. So taking embryos, whatever they would do to try to, to get the desired result. And recently, some rabbis certified, yes, I just stumbled on this because I was on a website talking about these things. But trust me, I don't go looking for this. <clears throat> and if you do, that's fine. It just hasn't been my bent. But they said they found a heifer baby red heifer without blemish. So they're watching carefully because it could develop a blemish at some point. But if, if not, then that animal would be killed in an appropriate time and then burned. And then its ashes would be preserved 
to be mixed with the water of purification. In any case, what does all this mean? Well, it means you got to live today just like you live every other day with expectation that God is at work, with a sense of urgency because we only have one life to live and lives hang in the balance, and with curiosity, are these outward signs that we're getting closer to the end of the age. Now, we know every second that ticks on the clock, we're getting closer to the end of the age, just like every second from the moment you're born, you're heading towards death. We, we understand that. I don't mean to be morbid, sorry. But is there more to this? We'll see. We shall see. It's, it's just fascinating to watch. And for most of world history, since the time of Jesus, we haven't been able to watch these things because we haven't been a nation, Jewish people in the land, with any possibility of rebuilding a temple or anything like that. So it's interesting, to say the least. We're going to come back and go straight to your call. Stay right there. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to Thoroughly Jewish Thursday on The Line of Fire. This is Michael Brown. Delighted to be with you. I've got a brand new article on the issue of anonymity. There was a big piece in the New York Times yesterday, in case you missed it, in which someone claiming to be a senior White House official, writing anonymously, which is highly unusual for an op-ed piece, to say the least, said that he is part of the resistance within, within the Trump administration trying, trying to thwart many of his radical ideas and work against certain of his principles. Uh, yeah, this is ridiculous. I, I, if this was done by a staff member of, of President Obama, I'd feel the same way. This is trash. You don't do that. Uh, anonymity means no accountability. Anonymity means you can't evaluate the truthfulness of the source. It means you don't know if this person is biased or is an axe to grind. It means they can do all kinds of damage and there's, there's no, uh, uh, no way to, to press back on the issue or prove it's false. And not only so, it shows a tremendous lack of integrity because you got somebody lying there. They agreed to, to work in this White House and they're working there while fundamentally thinking the president is unfit to be there. So, again, I don't care what side the person's on. This stuff stinks. So check out my article and there's a link in it to my new book, Donald Trump is Not My Savior. An evangelical leader speaks his mind about the man he supports as president. Again, you can get the sign numbered hardcover edition. It comes out in October only from our website. Otherwise, standard editions you can order anywhere. But go to our website, AskDrBrown.org, to find out more. All right, we go to the phones. We'll start in Columbus, Ohio. Randy, welcome to the line of fire. Thank you so much for taking my call, Dr. Brown. I just want to take a quick moment and say how much I appreciate the way that you respect and show love toward uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ, even those that disagree with you. Well, I think you. that's just a, a very Christ-like attitude. Um, my question deals with Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. And the two words that's translated there in the English translation, and even back to the Septuagint, I think, is um, commonly uh, translated to work and to keep, and then the it is supplied 
bringing it or referencing it to the garden, and I'm wondering if those those words could not be better translated to God's uh to have the object be God's word or God himself to worship or to serve God and to obey his commands. Uh, you know, I, I appreciate the thought behind your question, sir, but, but it doesn't work uh, grammatically or logically. The, the object is, is clearly, it says in the second half of the verse, So the suffix there, the pronominal suffix is absolutely going back to the Garden of Eden. So he placed man in that garden to work it and to keep it, to preserve it. So some would translate to culture it and to keep it. Now, in different contexts, the root avad can mean to serve. Sometimes it means to work. Sometimes it means to serve. And to keep can be in the context of keeping a garden or keeping commandments uh, but no, it's it's certainly in context there, rightly translated, that it means to he put him in the garden to take care of the garden. That's all it's saying. Hmm. Well, I appreciate that. I think Doctor uh, Salehammer, uh, Old Testament professor who's gone to be with the Lord, I think in his the expository uh, commentary actually uh, was alluding to the more of the translation that. Uh, that I was suggesting, but um, yeah. Well, uh, number number one, Professor Salehammer is a tr- was a tremendous scholar. He knew Hebrew well, and he knew Jewish tradition well, and he could well be saying there was a, a double entendre there that that there is a hint later at serving God and keeping His commandments, something like that. But in in context, it certainly means the garden, uh, w- without question. And that's why it's virtually universally translated like that. However, the words used could have a, a larger spiritual implication if you want to try to find some homiletical or deeper meaning. But the plain sense is definitely what it is. That being said, because, of course, I, I own that, that commentary and, and did the, uh, the Jeremiah commentary in the revised edition. So I'll, I'll check again to see exactly what he was bringing out. So he's a highly respected scholar. He's a great guide, totally reliable. So if, if he says a certain thing, then he's looking for another spiritual insight or a hint in the Hebrew as opposed to saying this is the plain sense, okay? Perfect. I, I really appreciate you taking my question and responding to that. Oh, yeah, you bet, Randy. Hey, since, uh, Randy, you were kind enough to mention my interacting with other believers with grace, hey, tomorrow night, anyone anywhere near Jacksonville, Florida— Anyone near Jacksonville, Florida, join Dr. James White and me. We are giving a presentation tomorrow night at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. What's the subject? How you can work together as believers across theological divides. So we're going to give this presentation together. The info is on my website, sdrbrown.org. Just click on itinerary. Now, Saturday night, an even more important event for the first time in many a year, we are joining side by side to debate others. We are debating a, a two pastors, a man and a woman, both of whom are, quote, married to their same-sex partners, both of whom say they believe in the authority of Scripture and are eager to debate what Scripture says about homosexuality. This is going to be Saturday night, also in Jacksonville, but at a church there in Jacksonville, not at the seminary. So go to my website, sdrbrown.org, 
and check it out. If you don't live anywhere near there, but you have friends that do, let them know. And of course, we'll be blasting it out on social media today and tomorrow to let folks know as well. Okay, 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to David in San Diego, California. Welcome to the line of fire. God bless you, Pastor um, Dr. Brown. I'm so excited to speak to you. Thanks for taking my call. You bet. Um, Well, my question is about the Jewish annotated New Testament. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with it because you've had uh, Amy Jill Levine on your radio program before. And I know you were very cordial, you know, to her, and that wasn't the time or the place to have a, a debate with her. Yeah. But as a Christian, I'm wondering what's the best um, approach that I should have to literature like this. Do you consider it reliable? And like, for example, um, Cambridge University Press put out a book last month, uh, a commentary on the Gospel of Luke, written by. Um, Amy Jill Levine with Dr. Ben Witherington III. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just, I'm very curious to hear what are your feelings, uh, you know, about those kinds of resources where you have a Christian scholar, a respected Christian scholar like Dr. Witherington, and then yep. someone like Amy Jill Levine working on a commentary. I'm only on like page 20-something, and I've already run into a few lines where I've been a little stuck and thinking— what I do with this. So how, how do you feel about those, those kinds of things like the uh, Jewish annotated yeah. New Testament? All right, so, so I, I look at it from a couple of different angles. The fact that Jewish scholars are joining together, David, and saying we recognize the New Testament is important Jewish literature, or the New Testament is something that must be read against its Jewish background, that's massive. That's wonderful. That's tremendous. That's a giant step in the right direction. Rather than thinking of it as some foreign literature that's unrelated to the Jewish people. No, it's saying we must put Jesus in the Jewish context of his day along with the rest of the writings of the New Testament. As you read it, though, you realize they are not believers. and They are reading it through critical eyes as well, and, and therefore they are going to have different perspectives. That's just taken for granted. There'll be different perspectives, but let me learn what I can. That's, so I'm super positive that it happened. Then I re- I've, I've worked through a lot of it and found it to be excellent. And other times, like, oh, boy, they missed that. That's something Messianic Jews have been pointing out for years. I was surprised they missed this or, or missed that, despite the excellent scholarship. So, number one, it's wonderful that it's happening. Number two, read it through the lens of, okay, this is not being written by believers and is not necessarily going to be sympathetic to some of our points of view or perhaps see things from those angles, despite the excellent scholarship. That's where, so you compare it to the Jewish New Testament commentary of, of David Stern, Messianic Jewish scholar, and you'll, you'll see some very different perspectives or other works by Messianic Jewish scholars, commentaries on, on Acts and Romans, Galatians by uh, Joseph Shulam and Hilary Lecornu, for example. Those are hard to come by and very expensive, but there's a lot of Messianic Jewish scholarship on the New Testament. So you kind of compare those. So you compare David Stern's Jewish New Testament commentary to the annotated uh, Jewish New Testament commentary by these Jewish non-Messianic scholars. As for collaborative efforts, Amy Jill Levine and Ben Witherington, of course, Ben Witherington is one of the world's top New Testament scholars and a very solid evangelical and very solid in his knowledge of the background to the New Testament, Jewish background and classical background. So uh, that's more interesting, sir, because you don't quite know what perspective you're getting. So I would read it 
with great interest, but with my eyes open. In other words, I'd read it with great interest thinking, hmm, does that, is that maybe more Amy Jo Levine's perspective as not believing what we believe? Or is that, is that more something I just say, okay, Ben Witherington's giving me guidance on this as an evangelical believer. So look, I, I read, since all my studies, academic studies were in secular schools, college and grad school, I never studied with people who believed what I believed. I'm in the church world I did, but outside of that, I didn't, the academic world. So I was constantly being challenged and I had to take in the scholarship, the learning, appreciate that, and then sift it. So sift everything, sir, against the grid of what you believe is the orthodox teaching of scripture and what you believe is upheld as the orthodox teaching of scripture by other believing scholars, and then sift it against that grid. And when something challenges that grid, look at it honestly and then determine, okay, what, what has to go here? The, this, this observation, or do I need to adjust my grid a little bit? Hey, thank you for the great question. We'll be right back. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. This is Michael Brown. Great to be with you today. So this Sunday evening begins the Jewish New Year according to Jewish tradition. In the Bible, it's the first day of the seventh month, but in Jewish tradition, this is the anniversary of the creation of the universe. And it's not a time for partying. Even even secular Jews don't have this as a time for partying. Either they don't recognize the, the holiday or they recognize it with sobriety. But this is a time when Jews around the world wish that everyone will be written down for another year's life a time of soul searching and repentance, the first 10 days. So the first 10 days of the seventh month, but here of the biblical, uh, the traditional new year, Jews look at these as yamim nochaim, as we explain every year, days of awe. And in the Bible, 10 is often a number of testing and trying. So this is a time of trying. This is a time of testing. This is a time of Jewish repentance, Jewish soul searching. And then on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, which is the 10th day of the seventh month of the biblical calendar. Jews spend 24 hours fasting and spend much time in prayer. If you're a traditional Jew, you spend most of that time, if you're not sleeping in the synagogue, praying prayers, going through a liturgy, confessing sin, asking for forgiveness with the hope that your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, that you're weighed in the balance and receive God's mercy for another year of life which means for all of us, it's a great time to be praying for the Jewish community. It's a great time to be saying, God, open Jewish hearts and minds to the need for a savior, the need for the Messiah, the need for blood atonement. And it's also a time to reflect on the coming of the Lord, which is a massive theme in the New Testament. And in, in our day, I would say the ones who talk about it most are those who believe in a pre-trib rapture, and are looking for Jesus to come any moment, looking for all the signs of the times. And others say, well, we don't believe in that stuff, but tend not to really think a lot about the second coming, whereas that is a massively important New Testament theme, and that which gives us hope 
It's not so much the when of his coming, but the what of his coming that gives us great hope. And according to the clear testimony of the scripture from Matthew 24 to 1 Corinthians 15 to 1 Thessalonians 4 to Revelation 11, Jesus, Yeshua, is coming with the shofar blast, the blast of the trumpet. And and when we look at this season, we recognize this is what it symbolically points to. Now, I want to go to your calls in a moment, 866-348-784. If it's Jewish-related, it's appropriate for today. But before I do that, you might say, how is it that the biblical calendar starts on Nisan, the first day of Nisan, with the Passover celebration? How is it that that's the biblical calendar, whereas the traditional Jewish calendar makes the seventh month of the calendar? So instead of March, April, instead September, October, makes that the time of the new year. So if you want to look this up, I, I checked it myself. Just search, just throw this out and just search. Why are there four Jewish New Year's? Or what are the four Jewish New Year's? You say four. Yeah, there are four. Now, before that sounds too bizarre to you, Jewish teachers will often point out, well, look, we have the new year, January 1st, right? That's the new year in, in, in the West. New Year, January 1st. Then, then we have, we also have, uh, say, a school year. When's the school year start? So that's late August, early September, right? And then that ends somewhere around May, June. Then you may have a fiscal year when businesses open and close their books or, or taxes you know, from here to here. So in that regard, you can have different New Year's on the calendar. So if you just look this up, and again, I, I just checked to see how easy it was to find what are the four Jewish New Year's or why are there four Jewish New Year's. So we mentioned this one, the first of Tishrei, which is the seventh month on the biblical calendar with the shofar bless. And the Bible doesn't say much about it except for the blowing of the shofars. But obviously that's a wake up call because it leads up to Day of Atonement, obviously a wake up call to search hearts in a time of repentance. All right. So the first of Tishrei serves as the new year for several purposes the best known being the new year for the civil calendar or the new year for seasons. All right. Then when you go down to um, the the next one, which is uh, the 15th of Shvat, also called two, because that's the, the letters for 15, two Bishvat, the 15th of Shvat. So the second new year is 15 Shvat, the new year for trees. So the new year for trees. Well, the Torah says you can't eat the fruit from a tree until it's three years old. Well, What's a year for a tree? So this is the new year for trees. Obviously not at the same significance. Then first of Nisan, which we previously mentioned. So that's the the time of redemption. The Passover season, which in the Bible is the first month of the year. And uh, because of that is, is considered to be a new year for the reign of kings. So when you're looking for the reign of kings, start it from here. And in the ancient world, they would start the reign of kings at certain times of the year. So, so just like we inaugurate presidents right in November, and, and even though we use the calendar year, they go from November to November in terms of their uh, one year in, two years in. And then the first of Elul, that's the new year for the tithing of cattle when, when you had to count certain things. Uh, the tithe for cattle had to be made from cattle born in the same fiscal year so between the first Elul one year and the next. Anyway, anybody can find that online for Jewish New Year's. You say, but there's no temple. There are no blood sacrifices. What does a traditional Jew do for atonement? 
Well, they would say that blood is important, but much more important is repentance and seeking God's favor and doing of good deeds and giving of charity, all of which have their place. But there was a reason substitution was so important. There are traditional Jews who to this day practice something called kaparis, which means atonement. Now, many traditional Jews reject this, but it is widely practiced. So you would take a, a hen or a rooster and you would wave it around your head, obviously killed, wave it around your head and say, this is my substitute. This is my exchange. This is my atonement. And, and then uh, some would say that money for that chicken, or the, the hen, the rooster would be given to charity. But with that, it's telling me that there's a recognition for some type of substitute. And to my Jewish friends, I tell you from the heart, you can pray, you can repent, but you need a substitute. You still need a substitute. That's why you had the priestly system. That's why you had the temple system. That's why you had the sacrificial system. That's why the blood, the innocent for the guilty. And that's what Messiah did. He himself took our sins on his shoulders, dying on the tree. While we were yet sinners, Messiah died for the ungodly. God took the iniquity of all of us because all of us have strayed and laid that iniquity on this one who never strayed, the righteous one. And as we turn to God in faith and repentance, we find mercy. Outside of that, we can plead for it all day long, but we're rejecting the mercy that God has provided. It's a serious loss for each of us. 866-34-TRUTH. Let us go to Flower Mound, Texas. David, welcome to the line of fire. Thank you, Brother Dr. Brown. Good to hey. talk to you. Um, I've been wanting to ask this question for a long time. Uh, the, uh, in, and I got the idea from uh, Jonathan Cain's book, um, Book of Mysteries. He has a page on the chiasma. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah, well, go ahead. Just how, how does he define this? So he says that which was uh, from the beginning will be at the end, and from the beginning. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. The pattern that's in the scriptures, and you start at the beginning where there was a paradise, there was a, a Garden of Eden built, and yeah. it restored mm-hmm. at the end. You know, that, that pattern that's there. And then you can go to the Messiah, he left from the Mount of Olives till return back to the... Uh, right, you have the, fir- the first Adam and the last Adam. Yeah, so, yeah. so when we talk about something being chiastic or chiastic, it's the, the Greek letter chi, which is an X, right? So if you take, let's say you take the top left and draw that line, so that now becomes the bottom right. And then the bottom left becomes the top right. So in Hebrew poetry, you might have something where you have A, B, B, A. So you might have the subject, the verb, the verb, and the subject. My favorite example is always Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12, which is hatred stirs up strife, but love covers a multitude of sins. But in Hebrew, that's a chiastic structure. It's ABC and then backwards CBA. So it's in Hebrew, love cover, excuse me, hatred stirs up strife, but over all transgressions covers love. So the, the first one is hatred, the noun stirs up the verb strife, the object, and now you reverse it, but over all transgressions, the object covers the verb, the noun, love at the end. So it puts this total contrast between hatred and love. Yes, yeah, so you have that in the Bible, paradise lost, 
Paradise Regained, First Adam Sins, Second Adam Purchases Our Redemption, uh, and various things like that in Scripture. So things do come full circle in many ways in the Bible, absolutely. And the the good thing is, because God's a redeemer, the end ends up better than the beginning ever was. Yeah, yeah. Do you see that same kind of alignment? And and, uh, Ashton Trader wrote a book called Alignment. Do you see that that kind of idea, um, you know, here today happening, where there's there's a there's an order to what God is doing, Jew first, then the Gentile. Uh, yeah, yeah. Back. So here 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 are different ways I I look at that, David. Uh, Asher is a dear friend, and he's a brilliant brilliant man and deeply devoted to the Lord. So the gospel starts with the Jewish people. It goes to the Gentile world, so the Gentiles are dependent on the Jews for the message. Now it goes from the Gentiles to the Jews, so the Gentiles have largely brought the message back to the Jewish people. And then in the end, it, it, it ends up back in Jerusalem. So it starts with the Jewish people, goes throughout the entire world, and then ends up back in Jerusalem. Or, obviously, I believe that the gifts and power of the Spirit that were manifest in the New Testament are God's intent for all ages, God obviously worked unique things in and through Jesus and the apostles, but there's the gifting and power of the Spirit that is given to all believers. So many things that were the norm in the book of Acts, I see restored to being the norm again at the end of the age. So in many ways, yes, I, I see these types of things. Even the whole idea of reformation was people saying we've got a lot of tradition that's getting in the way. We need to go back to Scripture. So how far we take that can be debated. But the, the large patterns of these things, yeah, absolutely, I do see. All right, we'll be right back to take more of your calls. Oh, and I've got an interesting observation about the controversy surrounding the president. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice is Hey friends, welcome to The Line of Fire. Yes, it is Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. It's so Thoroughly Jewish Thursday, the music jumped right in over our announcer. That's right, we're here. And if you've got a Jewish-related call, 866-34-TRUTH is the number to call. Okay, quick announcement, in case you missed this earlier. If you live anywhere near Jacksonville, Florida, Dr. White, Dr. James White and I invite you to Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary tomorrow night, Friday night. We'll be doing a live event together on how to work together across the theological divide. All right? Should be a great, eye-opening, enjoyable night. Then, Saturday night at Switzerland Church, also in Jacksonville, Florida, Dr. White and I teaming together to debate two pastors, a man and a woman, both, quote, married to their same-sex partners, both very enthusiastic about the Bible and saying the Bible supports their viewpoint, we're going to debate together against them. Will it be live streamed? Yes, that's the plan. It will be. But if you're anywhere near Jacksonville, by all means, join us. Details on my website, askdrbrown.org. Okay, now just a quick word of advice, and maybe I'll turn this into an article if I have the opportunity today. 
<clears throat> things are really swirling right now around the White House with the the hearings, initial hearings for Justice Kavanaugh for the Supreme Court, with hearings with leaders from Facebook and Twitter talking about is there bias in social media, with really intense accusations about the fitness of the president coming from a forthcoming book by Bob Woodward and an anonymous source, which I deplore this hiding behind anonymity for many reasons. Read my latest article, Enough with the Anonymity. you got truth, bring it out to the light. Show your integrity. And if you suffer the consequences, so be it. Hey, we do that every day of our lives for the truth. Uh, but here's my counsel. Whatever side you're on, don't react. Don't react. Because if you react, you're going to get more partisan and you're going to swing to an unrealistic position. What do I mean? You're a supporter of Trump. You think he's being treated unfairly. You're going to react so much in his favor because the attack against him is so savage that you're going to go too far and miss real areas that need prayer and that should concern us. You're an opponent of the president. You don't think he's doing a good job. You don't want him in the White House. You're going to swing the other way and believe all this and be almost irrational in your opposition to him. Neither position is healthy. And yes, in my new book, Donald Trump is not my savior. And evangelical speaks his mind about the man he supports as president. I, I do my best to toe the line of truth and light and, and to not get into partisan politics. And I think it'll help you stand with the president for the good that he does, grieve over issues where you think he could do better, and pray for the good of our nation, which is being ripped apart. And I don't see a lot of people working to heal the divide. I see a lot of people working to make the divide even deeper. So that's my counsel. And yes, the book is available for pre-order. If you haven't yet pre-ordered your exclusive hardcover edition signed, numbered, you can do that on our website, askdrbrown.org. All right, to the phones, we go to Andy in Durham, North Carolina. Thanks for holding, sir. Welcome to the line of fire. Thank you for having me on the show. You're welcome. I have a question on uh, the Jewish roots of the Eucharist. Have you read Brant Petrie's book? No, I, I, um, I've looked at it. I, I know it's from a Catholic perspective. Uh, if you look on Amazon, it's really highly reviewed. It's got like 435 reviews, and they're overwhelmingly positive. And it seems to be selling well a couple of years after publication. So I do need to look at it. I believe I downloaded it already. I just haven't gotten around to it yet. So uh, let me just say this, then you can get to a specific question, okay? Mm -hmm. I do not want to sound biased and closed-minded and reject what may be a lot of good information in the book, but because it's pointing to the mass, at least as I understand it, and because I reject the Catholic mass and reject the idea of some ongoing efficacy of an ongoing suffering of the Savior reflected in the Mass. Because of that, I'm skeptical. But again, I haven't read it, so I want to be fair. There may be brilliant insights and a lot of stuff I could learn from despite not being Catholic, but I come in with a big question mark just to be totally candid. Okay, so have, that's a have, very have you, honest have, uh, evaluation. Have you gotten into the book? Yes, I have. I uh, read it over the weekend. Okay. And, uh, it's actually very insightful. I know you probably don't have a lot of time left, but I would just say that the belief in the Eucharist that Jesus was really offering himself at the Last Supper 
and continues to offer himself to the Father for our behalf in an unblowing manner pretty much paints the definition of the Mass as taught by the Church for over 2,000 years, well, almost 2,000 years now. So I would encourage your listeners to read it and uh, take its information and uh, ask the Holy Spirit to move your hearts. Hey, that's that's certainly fair. And of course, I, I, I have some caveats in terms of the statement that you just gave, but let, let me ask you this quickly, sir. And, and again, as I said, I, I don't want to say more without giving the, the author the, the benefit of reading the work carefully and reading it with an open mind. So uh, my question, when Catholics will say, that the 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 Eucharist when we when you eat the 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 bread when you drink the wine that it's literally the body and blood of Jesus. When Jesus said, "This is my body," you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Would you agree that they literally did not cut him up at that moment and eat his flesh and drink his blood? No, they did not consume him in a cannibalistic form. Okay, so we we agree on that, obviously. So yes. he was on some level saying it metaphorically, correct? On some level, the bread and wine do represent his body and blood, yes. Okay, so you would still hold to transubstantiation for other reasons, and that's where we would differ. But at least we agree that there has to be something metaphorical in what's being said. So the whole idea that the Catholic position is literal and the Protestant is not literal, obviously there's there's metaphor there from the start. But, but listen, this, this book was brought to my attention some time ago. I'm almost sure that I downloaded it and therefore have it on my Kindle I need to get to it. So I'll take this as another reminder, and this way I can I can be more interactive and see what I can get out of the book. So thank you for asking me, Andy. Much appreciated. Much obliged. And uh, I really love your show, by the way. So thank Well, you thank that. you for listening, sir. I appreciate that. All right. 866-34-TRUTH. All right. Karen in Connecticut, time is short, so dive right in with I your know, question. I know. I know. All right. Here, you can hear me, right? If you speak right into the mic, it's better. You're a little low. Okay, I hope you, can you hear me now? Uh, a little better, go ahead. Okay, um, okay, so um, in Romans, in Romans it says that um, Abraham was counted for righteousness um, yeah. even though he was not circumcised, okay? But if you flip back to Genesis 15, um, 10, and then again uh, verse 18, it says that he believed. And um, and then God gives him the covenant. But what I'm wondering is, when was circumcision invented? Because how is circumcision counted? I mean, how is not circumcision counted for righteousness if it was not invented? Yeah, yet? yeah. okay, got, got it. So circumcision was never counted for righteousness. That was, that was a sign of the covenant that was a requirement. But it never brought righteousness to anyone. That's number one. Number two... Genesis 15, verse 6 is where it says Abraham, Abram believed and it was counted to him for righteousness. The covenant of circumcision was given in the 17th chapter. And then after that, Abraham continues to believe. For example, the, the 22nd chapter of, of Genesis, he's commended for his faith again. So what Romans 4 is saying, that he's the father of those who believe, both circumcised and uncircumcised, because when God first pronounced him righteous, he had not yet been circumcised. Genesis 15. Circumcision covenant, Genesis 17. He's commended again for his faith and obedience, Genesis 22. So he is a man of faith before circumcision, after circumcision. He is justified by faith before circumcision, after circumcision, and therefore serves 
as the father of faith for Gentile and Jew alike. Now, what's also interesting, Karen, is that circumcision was practiced in the land of Canaan. It was practiced in Egypt. The Philistines didn't practice it. They came in. They were called the Sea Peoples. They came in from elsewhere. They were not Semitic peoples, and they didn't practice it. That's why they were singled out as the uncircumcised Philistines. So this was something that was done in the land, and that Abraham is apparently being joined to the land by God and, and being told to take on this practice, which is done in the land, but then distinctly do it on the eighth day, etc. Hey, thank you for asking the question. All right, <clears throat> friends, we have a lot of exciting things going on right now in our ministry in terms of Jewish outreach, in terms of new plans to reach Israelis in Hebrew in Israel. There's a lot going on. If you don't get my emails, can I ask you to take a minute and go to my website now, askdrbrown.org, askdrbrown.org. Would you do that? All right, just take a minute. If, if you're driving, just wait till you have a, a moment. Go there and sign up for my emails, okay? You'll see right on the homepage, it says email. You just submit there and, and we'll send you a really neat free ebook. Seven Secrets of the Real Messiah, that you get automatically. And I've got some really important announcements about a new initiative that is going to be really exciting, reaching Jewish people with the gospel in the land of Israel that we could need your, you could use your help with. But this way you can be praying with us, believing with us, and you, you stay informed so you don't miss anything that we're doing. So make sure you take a minute. Would you do that? You'll be blessed in the process. AskDrBrown.org, sign up for the emails. And all our friends in Jacksonville, Florida, coming your way. Back with you live tomorrow.